0: good morning good afternoon good evening to you depending on your location today this is ali amagasu and as you know you've tuned into another episode of cloud unfiltered we thank you very much for that uh with me today is as always my co-host pete johnson coming to you from the nerd Lair in upstate michigan hey pete
1: hey ali how are you doing i, I think i finally it's the time of the year where i'm starting to surpass you in weather quality because it's 67 degrees outside today and just gorgeous outside
0: yeah, I don't know that you can see how things are here, but we are having the weirdest, grayest, ickiest spring ever in Southern California, and it's wrong. I read yesterday that it's like 84 degrees in the Arctic Circle or something, and I was, <laughs> this is just wrong yeah, on so your, many your, levels.
1: Your air quality is going to start to suffer here pretty soon, too.
0: Yeah, not enjoying it. I hear that the Chihuahua situation is escalating over there. Don't worry. Yeah, it me. sounds
1: like it is. I think when you introduce Scott, I'm going to go up, hop upstairs real quick and, and take care of that.
0: Is there a mailman or what is going on?
1: Well, it could be UPS and my wife has a doctor's appointment. When we usually record these things, she's usually in charge of chihuahua wrangling, but you know, left to their own devices, this is what can happen.
0: <laughs> it's okay. I think they're charming. Anyway, right. let me introduce our guest. His name is Scott Ford. He is a distinguished architect with Chef. And we are so happy to have you with us today. Welcome, Scott.
2: Holly, thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: We. I have to say, we haven't talked to anybody for any of the big automation uh, companies in a while. So I'm excited, I have questions. And, and my first one out of the gate is gonna kind of seem like just a bucket of cold water because I'm not even getting into, I'm assuming that people know what Chef does. Maybe I shouldn't. I'm gonna stop back a second and say, for people who don't know what Chef does, take a minute. Tell us, tell us kind of what you guys do, what your main offerings are, so they can understand where this discussion's gonna go.
2: Well, no that's great I, it's a great place to start actually because this is a challenge that chef faced, even with our own customers because we uh we, you know chef is an automation company automation uh, around infrastructure and applications and also compliance but really when we think about today uh our customers are, are you know large enterprises uh to small businesses as well uh, that are deploying their applications on prem and in the cloud, and they need to do that all from the way that we've learned from the the leaders out there is that change should be driven from uh, from code and it should be automated, and that's where Chef, uh, that's what what Chef is uh, our specialty is.
0: I feel like you guys have been around for a while. How long has Chef been in business?
2: Yeah, so Chef as a company has been uh, in business for ten years now. The, the original configuration management tool, Chef, came out uh, 10 years ago.
0: Interesting. So you've seen some changes over that time. And what I wonder is, what's different? What are enterprises able to automate now that they couldn't five years ago or 10 years ago? What's the new hotness in the automation space? It may not just apply to you guys. It may apply to, you know, across the board, across to many companies.
2: That's a, That's a great question. Well, I'd say for, for us, a, a really big differentiator and something that's gotten a lot of our customers really excited is this idea of automating compliance, uh, compliance controls. So um, Chef's DNA is very much in the approach, like we, we've always embraced the idea that automation, writing automation code is software development. It's There's really no different than any other code you're writing inside your organization if you're writing uh, Java code and building artifacts, Chef, Code starts on a developer's laptop and flows out from the left to the right through source control and CI pipelines and so on until you produce artifacts and deploy them out. Now, part of this, what we've seen in the enterprise space is um, uh, one of the biggest blockers to to the transformation to speed is this idea around security and compliance. Security and compliance for a lot of our customers exists in a state that it is a, a gate that, teams must pass through in order to get their applications deployed out. But we've been doing software, we've been doing test-driven development for for years. That's existed for years. And so a while back, Chef was down this road of, you know, helping our customers not just write Chef automation code, but set up pipelines and deploy uh, their changes through CI pipelines. And we started looking at that challenge of like, well, what if we could take the controls, you know, the 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 regulatory guidelines that these changes have to pass through and and codify those and put them in a way that when if I'm a developer, and I'm writing automation code, I can test that code for compliance standards while i'm on my laptop And when i check my changes into source control and that change merges and goes through a pipeline we test again and then once my changes are actually deployed my infrastructure is running my apps are running then i'm continually testing my uh my my environments to make sure that they adhere to the compliance standards and so on so i'd say that that one right there has just that that's been a game changer for chef we um ab- about three years ago, purchased a a German, we acquired a German security company that come up with a a testing framework called InSpec, which is uh, the ability to take types of controls. So if we think about like particular packages that either need to be on a system or should be removed from a system or services that should or should not be running, et cetera, you can write the, the tests and have those run and the output of that is a true or false. So this is actually making no changes to a system, but purely validating that a a system or an application is in the state that it's supposed to be in. And so I I, I look at that right now, and it's one of our most exciting areas out there and something that enterprises didn't used to be able to do but can do today.
0: Are they even aware that that that's possible right now? Are most customers (laughs) even aware?
2: that's a great question as well i you know for for a lot of them yes it's it, it is absolutely picking up steam and we've got a lot of uh InSpec itself is is of course an open source framework and we've got contributions from uh chef customers but also outside of the chef community uh, individual engineers government agencies that are also contributing back to uh to the framework itself so we've seen a lot of momentum
0: interesting well in general i wonder if you're you know, you, you obviously have a fuller picture than probably your customers do of what can be automated and what should be automated. And what I wonder is when they come to you, do you feel like most enterprises know where the real value is going to be and they ask you to write the, to automate the right things or are they usually interested in kind of the wrong things? It sounds exciting, but it's not gonna deliver as much value as, as what they think.
2: Enterprise is, it's a, it, enterprise by itself, God, we could spend this whole time talking about this specifically, <laughs> but, um, you know, we live in a world where where I feel that a lot of IT and in enterprise, there's still a lot of centralized IT, IT that owns specific function. And there, and there's this foundation that came, you know, years before of buying solutions that you install and set up and, um, and uh, deploy and you start to get value out of it. But automation is something that somebody has to write, <laughs> you know, so... Um, so in the beginning there is this this place you know enterprises have to to grapple with this idea that there is this whole right digital transformation that people like to talk and throw around but it's for real i mean you can't just deploy devops in an environment and hope and it just works it's not like that there is the <laughs> transformation about all the other things that go along with it and what i was touching on before the software Development best practices, right? We, um, you have to embrace it all. That that includes understanding how um, the value of, of storing your source code in inside of you know tools like Git and Bitbucket, GitLab, etc., using CI/CD pipelines. So. Um, So getting the value out of it, it involves a lot of different things. The technology is always the easy part. It's the cultural parts, the aspects that are the the biggest challenges in in transforming the enterprise.
0: As a marketer, I appreciate you validating that digital transformation is a real thing and not just something that we're flinging around trying to sell stuff. Pete, I have to imagine that this provoked a question or two from you.
1: Yeah, so you you talked about sort of that it's not just about deploying DevOps, but you have to do some stuff with it. Are, are you seeing, are, are enterprises seeing the ROI on, on DevOps or are different parts of an enterprise either seeing it or not seeing it? Like the line of business teams doing heads down software development for whatever you know ecosystem they're trying to get customers in versus the IT team that, that tends to be a little bit a little more legacy driven and maybe a little more cost conscious. Are 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 you seeing differences in enterprises as a whole, or in, in differences in in groups within enterprises?
2: Yeah, I would say it really it depends on the group that you're talking with, and 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 it really does. And. In, in the places where I've seen success, it really does involve a whole, from top down, everybody on board. So I, I don't know who in the audience out there has read the Phoenix Project, but that's like, that's for real. Like finding, finding a leader with the, the vision to, and and the courage to be really bold about thinking about the the way to solve that challenge, you, you, can, you can have absolute success. I, I can't cite specific customers by name, on sure. this, but I've, I've had the privilege in the last five years and, and even in the last year and a half to work with some incredible leaders that have been backs against the wall, IT projects that have deadlines that they, they realize are not going to, to deliver, not the long-term. They might deliver a short-term goal of getting some IT automation project out there, but the longer term, how do we actually build something that's sustainable? It really does take a Phoenix project scenario to go in there and let's do something from end to end. Let's take an application and let's see, let's automate the whole thing from left to right. When I say left to right, I'm always talking about change starts on the developer's laptop. Somebody's going to write code somewhere. So open up your laptops, write some code, let's get that in source control and let's start collaborating in that way. The enterprises that I've seen have the most success are the ones that they have this foundation where they believe that everything should be driven as code, right? Everything should be driven as code versus the teams that are not having success where they are the human handoffs between team to team, that kind of central IT design where you have the VMware team that spins up VMs. Uh, could you imagine like if AWS launched EC2 and they're like, guess what? You can have VMs as fast as you want them. You're like, great, I got my VM. And they're like, well, h- how do I log into this? Well, you got to open up a ticket and there will be an IP address assigned to you. And that should be done in like a week. That's for real. I mean, that's the type of stuff that we see in there where it's not code driven. It's not an API that I can launch and get it in, in, in an environment spun up but it is actually these types of of um handoffs manual handoffs between teams and those are the areas where we really see the the possibilities of automation start to fall short
1: what, what was the name of the book oh sorry it's the phoenix project no it's okay the phoenix
0: project. Has, has everybody read that was that something we should think that everybody's read i haven't it's, read
1: it it's like a it's like a novelization of what uh what an it team might go through when they're going through some kind of digital transformation kind of thing and yeah i forget what year it came out but it's it's pretty transformative and it it's, it's compelling because it tells it in, in a novel form um as opposed to you know a data sheet or or something like that but but yeah scott's right it's it's those those are the kinds of leaders that you need and what i was going to ask as a follow-up is Do do you you see people sort of seeing the scarcity? Because I've been in this business, I've been in tech for long enough that the the scarcity, the scarce resource used to be the physical machine. And that's why you protect it with, with a ticketing system is because it used to be, if you screwed up a physical machine, it took you several months to get a new one. So that's why all these processes exist to protect against change control on those physical machines. But as the unit of compute, got you know when it went from months to, to minutes to seconds to, to in some cases milliseconds that no longer becomes the scarce resource now human time has become the scarce resource and much to your point the more that you can automate the less human time you can take out of a system but like what percentage when you when you even get involved in a project at a customer like do they already get that or is there some convincing that still has to be done
2: Oh, there's still often a lot of convincing that needs to be done. Absolutely, and you know, for for better or for worse, we're, we, in Chef we we talk often about this idea of shifting left. Right, shifting mm-hmm. left is the is the idea that again, if change is starting on the laptop, let's try to do as much of the testing and and automation that we can do starting on the laptop as possible. So, Pete, to your point about VMs, right? Uh, it, If I have to request a VM from ops and they're gonna launch it out for me in a week that I can log into, I may make changes to that VM. uh, The next time I go to run my tests against it, if there are changes that existed from my previous tests in there, I'm not starting from a clean state. All of a sudden you're starting to, to introduce risk further out into the right as we get systems that are not like production and not repeatable One of the areas that we start off with in the world of Chef with any of our customers is this idea around local development, the ability to provision a VM using tools like Vagrant or, of course, EC2 or Azure, spinning up VMs quickly that you can spin up, run your automation code on, be working on automation code, iterate, tear it down, and then the next morning, spin it right back up and you're in the exact same state. Um, there's another piece, of course, that goes along with this that we do a lot of work on, which is creating base images from code and so on. But you know anything that we can do to shift left, get get people to to value, get people to a repeatable process, more efficient process, we're gonna drive down risks. we're gonna dr- we're gonna drive down costs. We're gonna make people more efficient, ultimately go faster. right.
0: So, I'm I'm at risk here of exposing my um true lack of technical knowledge here, but I'm gonna ask the question anyway. <laughs> I'm wondering where automation and AI intersect, if they ever do. Because as as somebody who'd be an end user, to me, I don't know that something that's automated will look that much different to me from something where a smart machine has figured out my habits. When Ali launches a cluster. I automatically, you know, if it's been automated, we these are her security settings, it's going to connect her to this network, if this is her storage, da-da-da-da-da. Now, whether a machi- that's happened from machine learning software or from automation software that a- someone's actually entered those parameters, probably makes no difference to me. So does it become part of your solution or is it two separate things that should stay separate?
2: Well, sh- Chef, as far as using AI in our own products, that's not that's not something that we're focused on right now. Chef is more about the glue. When you talk about Ali launching out a cluster, the glue that brings that all up and the way that systems communicate and find mm-hmm. each other and talk, that's really where, uh, where automation starts to, to cross into in, into something like AI. Yeah. So, so what, um, sorry,
0: yes? No, go right ahead. I'm, I'm yes. interested in understanding that that difference. Um, do you guys view it as a threat? Then do you is it is it is if you guys aren't doing is somebody doing it? Should is is it going to change the way automation works? Do you think?
2: Well, look, look, there's lots of different patterns that exist out there that that companies are using to deploy applications. Of course, there's there's traditional work. I mean, companies are still deploying you know stateful uh, services on bare metal. There are there's VM. There is still uh, you know there's new patterns like. Pivotal Cloud Foundry and Mesosphere and of course Kubernetes there's serverless right there's there's lots of different patterns that exist out there but for the majority of those patterns there are there is still infrastructure you know uh there that you have to deploy out there are there is still security that you need to put in place for system there is typically artifacts that we build if we're building containers those still start again from that left to right flow of writing docker files that create our containers then build them out and you have to think about when my application deploys how is it going to find other services how is it going to find things like secrets management to be able to pull in and authenticate and and find other services and so on so your ai systems that you deploy that whole process needs to be thought of about how you're going to automate the glue, if you will, that it binds it all together. And, um, and Chef has a number of different areas. You know, Chef, the configuration management tool, if you're bringing up, say, your own Kubernetes clusters on-prem, um, some people still do it versus using the cloud offerings. Y- you still have systems. They still need to be configured. They need to be hardened and tuned and patched, et, et cetera, so that they're, they're deployed to your standards and then deploy the services out on top chef also has uh, an application automation framework which is which is not uh, as widely known throughout our community and uh, throughout the, the space out there which is called habitat and it deals with uh, the the higher level abstractions around really solutions that we need around application automation itself. So how do we build our application into artifacts? How do we, where do we want to deploy those uh, uh, those artifacts to? Once they're deployed, how do we deal with the application lifecycle management of them? So how do we update them? How do we configure them? How, What are the lifecycle? Uh, How do we health check, smoke check, service discovery, topologies, all that. So Habitat's a big, big topic, which I'm happy to go into detail around. But so if you're looking for automation itself and where AI fits in there, I think that right now today, it's more about deploying the systems and clusters that would support AI rather than AI to be used to how we better um, uh, automation itself. But that would be an exciting area to go into. Absolutely. So.
0: That's a great answer. You know, you you mentioned on-prem uh, Kubernetes deployment, and it it made me wonder how much how much are you seeing as far as private clouds? Uh, I know there's a number of of companies coming out with it seems like on-premises solutions lately to complement, say, a, an existing public cloud presence. You know, for whatever reason, there's there's data that they need to keep on site. There's uh, software they need to keep on site. Are you guys seeing a lot of that?
2: So, uh, believe it or not in the Fortune like you know, the the global 5000 companies and a lot kind of larger mid-sized enterprises, it's 100%. All of them still have their own private clouds. I can tell you that some some of the biggest names that you and I know here in up and down California and Southern California that have told us for the I In my first year that I was here at Chef, I was on site. Everything's going to AWS, 100%. Everything's going there. You know what? They're still deployed on-prem. And this is because IT projects are not easy. They're really, they're really, I can see that anything net new could get deployed out into AWS. But as far as like, are we ready to just shut down the data centers? No, we're not. So it's still across our customers, it's, the, the ones that I'm dealing with our largest enterprise customers it's 100 percent of them still maintain their own data centers and in some cases they're deploying they're they're standing up newer data centers right now um, more modern data centers as well so I still it's going for from my viewpoint it's going to be hybrid for a very long time
0: there you go listeners don't feel guilty if you still have stuff in your own data center you're not the only one not even close. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Now, of course, they, as I said before, they've all got they've all got the the newer initiatives out there for for microservices and serverless and so on. But but there are certain workloads that exist that either they're not going to ever port to one of those platforms, or um, they need to keep them on-prem for some, some from some specific reason. So yeah, there's some really really neat stuff. I mean, so much to go into around that. Um, you know, concerns around security of you know certain enterprise customers feeling, whether or not they can trust going into the public cloud. Um, But then also the other things that are preventing them too are like right now there's this burning issue out there for a lot of our enterprise, which is the end of uh, Windows 2008 support. And if you come in there and you tell them, hey, everything, just let's put it all in Kubernetes. I mean, honestly, that's not a solution. You can't just say everything's going into Kubernetes. The, there are workloads in there that will never ever run in Kubernetes. So how do we deal with those as well? How do we get ourselves automated and off off of uh, older platforms like that? So,
0: I did not know that was a burning issue. Pete, did you know that the end of Windows 2008 support was?
1: It it doesn't surprise me that it is, and, and I would imagine that that's like a that's like a tell question that you might ask a customer at the beginning. I mean, you mentioned running on prem, running services on bare metal hardware too. I I know. Like for an example, it's been a while since I've had to do an, an in-customer pre-sales presentation. But if you if you walk into the, the room and they hand you a VGA cable to connect to the to the to connect to the to, to the uh, projector as opposed to an HDMI table cable or a Cisco proximity device, that tells you about sort of where a company might be generally in their technology. Adoption. So I take it from that laugh, Scott, that you you agree with that. That sometimes there's there's questions like that that you can you can tell within five minutes about what kind of what the conversation is going to be like, right?
2: Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I I did. I, I encounter it. Uh, yeah, it's all too common for me. Absolutely.
1: Well, and to I mean, I I once worked in an IT organization that was freaking out over VB five going out of support and like. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's an application that you haven't touched for 10 years and everybody who wrote it, you know, has retired, it's, it can be a scary thing because you're looking at an expensive, well, at least of what you perceive to be an expensive rewrite to, in order to get it to run somewhere else. So when, when someone has that concern, so is that an opportunity to, to, for them to say, look, if you, can, if you have to rewrite this because this is going out of support anyway, Here's how you can rewrite it in a way that gives more power to the the left side of this diagram. So is, is that are those conversations that that get sparked by those kind of things for for Chef and
2: Yeah, so um, absolutely. We we we're really really excited right now. Um, so we've with Habitat specifically. So Habitat is application automation again. It's it's uh, you write what are called plan files to describe how to build an artifact. And Habitat supports both Windows and Linux. So uh, on Windows side of things, you're writing PowerShell scripts that right. describe the, the, the common steps you would need. I mean, are we building a COTS application? Do I need to go and download an artifact from somewhere and unpack it and put things in a certain place, configuration files? In, in a Habitat plan, we, we have what are called lifecycle hooks that describe things like what, what what would the script look like that would run an application or reconfigure an application or health check or smoke check an application. And each one of those scripts is also bundled up in this artifact that we write. Uh, just like automation that we were talking before that like it, somebody's got to start and write this from scratch. Uh, what we looked at around the Windows 2008 issue that's going on out there was is there a way that we could actually inspect these systems somehow and build habitat plans automatically for our customers? Right. And what we were able to determine is the answer is yes. So uh, with Chef's compliance testing framework, Inspect, we were able to write profiles that describe questions about our about. Uh, applications deployed onto Windows 2008 servers. So we're talking specifically like ASP.NET IIS applications and be able to run our InSpec compliance tool against a server and automatically build a Habitat plan as well as the configuration details, um, you know, so Habitat can bind to other services and so on. So uh, it will automatically populate binds to databases etc and give you a a point that what you end up with is a git repo that has a habitat plan that you can take back to your local laptop or you can drop into azure devops and you can just run a build and it will produce you an immutable artifact that is your application all of its dependencies so when i say all of its dependencies all of its configuration all of the system dll's that are needed to deploy that particular application are all bundled up and in And with this, versus like a lift and shift where you go in and you take and you recreate it somewhere else, we actually, what our customers are left with is a complete CI/CD pipeline for building and deploying their application. And with this immutable artifact, I can go and run that on a VM. I can go and run that in the cloud. I can run it on-prem. But Habitat artifacts that you build can also be exported into other formats, including uh, Docker containers. You can build... You can export to Helm charts, Pivotal Cloud Foundry, Mesosphere, and more. So you have one pipeline that can take your artifact and then run it in different places that you need to be able to run it.
1: So, so once you get that initial bundle and you can get it under that Habitat format, then you then you've got some choice that you've got going forward.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we proved this out with some of the just nastiest applications, too. You know, when you come out with new technology like Habitat, I mean, obviously, one of the first questions any enterprise can say is, like, prove it. And so yeah. we've had we've had customers come back to us, and we said, listen, give us something. Give us something hard. Give us something of of importance to your company. It can't just be like, yeah, of course you did it with that one. And it's like, I, I want something that means something to the business, and let's so that we can port it. And we've had... Customers come back to us. Uh, you know, one example was an old uh, application that was running on uh, w- uh, Windows 2003. It was um, uh, an old COM plus application. They had uh, mm-hmm. it was a, a COTS application, so uh, consumer off the shelf. And this application was handling fi- uh, financial transactions with the Central Bank of Brazil. So literally, this this large enterprise, any of those dealings that they had. Uh, the, the work they were doing was going through this particular application it was taking them like, you know, two to three weeks to deploy out new versions anytime they got updates from the vendor. And what we were able to do with, um, the, the barrier to entry for habitat applications is 32 bit or higher, and it needs to support a silent install. So in that, that's kind of, that's par for the course for, for really any automation, you can't automate something that if you have to click through a GUI and, and, Click yes, yes, next, next. Right. So we did a little bit of back and forth with the vendor. But when we came back to this particular customer, we were able to show their application building in under 30 seconds, deploying out instantly wherever they were running it. And we showed it running on the latest Windows 2016 VM, but also running in a Windows 2000, uh, a Windows container as well. So it's extremely portable and, and, uh, and, you know, the results that we're getting with building applications that people thought were really unautomatable are, are, are we're,
1: we're able to do. So it's really exciting com, stuff. Com objects for the win. I didn't think we'd I go know. into this conversation <laughs> and mention com objects. For you kids out there, that predates .NET. And I had to look that up. .NET's first release was in 2002. So com objects, was the Microsoft technology that predated that. So imagine having to take an application that's got on 18 year old technology and getting it to run in a container. That's awesome sauce.
0: <laughs> it is indeed. And I'm still fixated on these enterprises that are dealing with the end of Windows 2008. What happens, like what's their deadline? How long do they have to figure this out?
2: Well, so it's really, it's, it's, it's a cost question right because you yeah. can of course go and pay microsoft for extended support and ah. and so it's it's cost and how much do they really want to go in there and do that microsoft of course would love to see these workloads in in running in azure instead of uh and so you know there, there's lots of um, lots of companies out there with skin in the game trying to help solve this we've got a kind of unique approach how we want to go about it which is not just not just a lift and shift, but a, an application modernization and transformation. So we can get you from going to, I have no idea how it's built. to yeah, there's the actual plan, how it's built. It's running through a pipeline and it's delivered the same way that we deliver, you know, the, the, the same shape that we would deliver an application or build a container as well. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Hey, we're running up against the end of our uh, our time limit here, but I wanna I wanna make sure we cover everything. Are there any questions I haven't asked you yet that I should ask you about what's going on interesting in the uh, automation space? And and also, Pete, if there was anything left that you wanted to ask,
1: I'm I'm good. I was like I said, I'm I'm thrilled that uh, that that comma objects came up that that we rarely have a guest that knows what that is so i'm i'm feeling less of an old man right now so thank you for that scott (laughs) well pete i'm i'm
2: thrilled that you didn't go and uh, ask any follow-up questions about com objects because i am actually a linux systems administrator that's the root for me but uh, over these last few years you know chef has always tried to treat windows as a first class citizen so the work that we're doing just in chef the configuration management in Spec and now Habitat as well has forced my hand to to learn about all kinds of things. I thought <laughs> keep me away
1: from that stuff. I right? know, right? Well, if but, if you need help, I, I was Windows NT four certified in 1998, so you've got a you, you've got a, a back door should you need it.
2: <laughs> no, I just like to say uh, it. It has been amazing to watch Microsoft over these last few years and the transformation that's going on out there with under Satya Nadella. Um, it's just exciting. They're like, you know, Windows 10 is going to ship with that you can run Linux natively inside of Windows soon. And, and um, you know, for some of my colleagues that are now writing Habitat plans, they write the Windows laptop is the ultimate development workstation because you can build Habitat plans for Linux and you can build them from Windows where if you're running a MacBook or you're running Linux, you can only build for, for the Linux environment. So, there's just all kinds of exciting stuff that's going out there. It's been amazing for me to, to, to sit by and watch my customers have so much more success with automating Windows and that whole ecosystem that they never were able to before.
1: Cool stuff.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Scott, and sharing you know your insights into what's going on in, in the world of automation and what enterprises are struggling with. We appreciate it. And I think it's always very, very helpful to our listeners. So we appreciate your time today. Thank you.
2: Oh, I can't thank you enough for inviting me. It's uh, I really enjoyed enjoyed the conversation.
0: Great. Have a great afternoon.
2: Thanks you as well. Bye-bye.
0: Bye bye. Bye-bye, bye. Bye
2: bye, Pete. Bye.